0: dot com. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Wavebreak Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Kelly, founder and CEO at Wavebreak, a leading email and CRM agency. We bring enterprise-grade email and SMS marketing agency solutions born from startup DNA to your brand and help you maximize revenue as an extension of your team. If you want to learn more about partnering with us, if you think there's more to get out of your existing email and SMS marketing program, you're probably right. Most brands are leaving significant revenue on the table due to under-optimized programs. So if you want to learn more about partnering with us and how we can help you optimize your program from end-to-end, go to wavebreak.co or click the link down in the show notes below. Welcome back to another episode today on e-commerce leaders. We're actually not talking about e-commerce. Well, we are a little bit, but we're talking about an omni-channel brand, Omsom. I'm joined by Vanessa Pham, who's the CEO and co-founder of Omsom. You've probably seen them around the DTC-verse, and she's coming on the show to share her experience starting and scaling the brand from initial concept to national retail. In this episode, she covers the story and origin of the brand, including how they had to scrap multiple iterations of the early brand because it just wasn't what they had in. Visioned and what they wanted to stand out in the marketplace, lessons from launching as a DTC brand in the pandemic, and then since then scaling into Whole Foods and Target, hiring strategy and recruiting as a high growth consumer startup to ensure that they have the right role at the right time and people who are passionate about the brand and what they do and so much more. Without further ado, let's jump right into it. Vanessa, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Ellen, thank you for having me. Very excited to chat, big fan. Uh, can't wait to dive in.
0: Yeah, excited to chat all things building a brand in 2023. So let's, before we get into today and what's going on now, um, which you've got a lot of exciting things in the pipeline, w- what's your background and how did you get into Omsom and start this brand?
1: Totally. I am 28 years old. I started Omsom when I was 24. I started working on it when I was 24. Uh, I started it with my sister. We're the daughters of Vietnamese refugees. And that's like a huge part of our identity and why we started the company. And my career before starting on I was a management consultant at Bain. Before that I ran an e-commerce business while I was a student at Harvard, learned a lot doing that. And my sister has always been in startups and venture capital ever since she was 16, like before people even used the word startup, she was working at early stage companies. Um, and so We got together because we had this kind of like lifetime of experiences where when we were kids, Asian food and Asian culture was something that we, you know, had to almost like minimize to fit into our hometown that was 98.5% white. Um, we, We did that from a place of like social acceptance and survival. And then, you know, fast forward 20 years and Asian culture and Asian cuisine is having this absolute renaissance in the U.S. And we're so proud to see that. But in food and in the grocery store, that's where we felt like it was behind. And when we looked at the shelf, we we're like, what the heck? Like all these like stereotypical brands with like dragons and pandas and really diluted flavors. And so we wanted to create something that would actually honor and celebrate the communities and cuisines that were represented. And that's really what drove us to kind of quit our jobs. We were on these like safe paths, quit them and, and take a big risk to start some.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. What was the e-commerce business that you ran in college?
1: Um, it was a Harvard apparel and goods like branded goods website,
0: okay. And so you were just like slinging these on a Shopify store or
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> what did it was that look so like? was it
0: print on demand or how did no, you you're using your student discount and reselling them or what was <laughs> what was so it business? was a
1: part it was part of a student run business and um, our website, basically sold everything from like Harvard sweatshirts to like chairs, like branded chairs and rings and blankets. Um, and we actually held real inventory, which was really cool to get the chance to like r- help, you know, run that. And we would do photo shoots. We did Facebook ads. We like got to really test with a bunch of different things. I learned, I learned a ton and I actually grew at 40% in a year, which was oh, wow. really exciting. So <laughs> yeah. Who most were most of the like customers?
0: Are they the people I see walking down the street in the Harvard shirts who definitely didn't go to Harvard? Or (laughs) is it actually like, you know, parents, alumni, that sort of thing?
1: It's both. But actually, I feel like where the growth opportunity was, was for the people walking down the street. So that's where we leaned into with our ad strategy.
0: Got it. That's so funny. Um, Were there any particular states or places that stood out that like maybe would be, I don't know, something that you wouldn't expect who were buying from that?
1: Well, I would say it was it was more or less in line with what we would have expected, like certainly okay. a lot of kind of like big cities, East Coast areas, um, but I, also still quite diverse just because like Harvard okay. is relevant to many folks. We did, though, from a Facebook likes perspective, like we ran a couple of campaigns to like increase our likes and we had a lot of likes from like Spanish speaking countries. Uh, which is <laughs> no something we hilarious. saw that like, if we put ad dollars towards Spanish speaking countries, like the likes would just like ramp up like crazy. So not sure why that was. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's amazing. Um, uh, yeah, I just had to ask because I find that so interesting. I, I figured it was probably a mix of a mix of those types of customers, but, um, yeah. yeah so fast forward, you're in management consulting, did you, like, were you enjoying it? Or the whole time you're like, this sucks and you're always looking for a new opportunity. So then Amsam presented itself and you're like, oh, let's go all in, and, uh, in on this. Um, like, how did you initially, like, what was the initial decision? Like, okay, we I'm, I gotta go all in on building a brand.
1: Yeah, well, I feel like my journey up until starting Amsam was very much the this kind of stereotypical child of immigrants um journey, which was like, oh my gosh, like let me just de-risk myself endlessly. Let me just like make my parents feel good about their sacrifices and struggle and like reach for the external validation. Right. Like that's that's why I went to Harvard and worked at Bain. And I think that felt really good until one day I realized like I was probably leaving so much opportunity on the table, both for myself personally and in terms of being able to impact narratives and culture and dialogues at a national level. And so about a year into my time at Bain, I was learning a lot. It was very rewarding. I definitely worked a little bit more than I would have liked. Um, But at that point, I just started thinking, like, what what could be possible if I took a big swing here? And I think specifically being Vietnamese American, like Southeast Asian, uh, like educational outcomes, Vietnamese American educational outcomes are very different than any other group. And I felt very privileged, candidly. With some of the resources and access that I had, um, and so I, yeah, I just felt called to to take a leap and see what I could po- like possibly achieve early on in my career. Um, and starting a company that was mission driven and like deeply aligned with my values felt like a really good first step. So that was pretty much all that I was motivated by. Like, I wouldn't say we were, you know, relentless about you know, like moving, like working backwards from like the gap in the market where there's like a big exit opportunity. Like we've gotten there for sure over time, but it wasn't like the first seed. It was very much mission as the first seed.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. And then what year was it when you went and started the brand? And then when did you go full time on it?
1: So we took, we took a big person that both were at the same time. Oh, like. wow. We basically started while I was at Bain for like the last month and a half, we would do some like weekends and nights, like ideation and brainstorms. But when I quit Bain in the fall of 2018, I didn't have, we didn't have like a clear plan. We just had like some ideas and we were like started going really head down on it in earnest at the start of 2019. Um, Just my sister and myself, we were squatting at a WeWork in Dumbo in (laughs) Brooklyn um, we had some friends that let us just like come, come as guests every day. And we did that for a long time while we were bootstrapping for about a year.
0: Well, eventually while you go, when you go enough times, the staff just stop questioning you and you just keep showing up. Um, exactly.
1: Where... <laughs> I mean, They, they became <laughs> or, our friends. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: Yeah. I even remember there used to be a hack where you could just sign up for, un- you just use a new email address for a seven day trial or something. So like in oh, the early days gosh. of my agency, that's what we would do. We'd go in and we'd, We'd all just sign up for a different trial and then you could we figured out you could pair the card itself in the app. And wow. uh, with that, we, we you never had to talk to a rep to get the card to work. So it would just work every week. Uh, oh,
1: my gosh, that's incredible. That I don't that's know if the they crappy stuff that or I not. love.
0: Yeah. Uh, that <laughs> might, might be why their valuation is down so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we caused it. Um, no, but okay, so you launched the brand. Was the branding always what it is today? Was it like from day one, we want to stand out on the shelf, we want to have a unique brand? Because I think like that's what amsam does really well, but like differently than other D C brands, like it's very, mm-hmm. you know, it's clean, it stands out, but at the same time, it's not like your typical of the 2019 like DTC-esque branding. Um, totally. So how were you thinking about branding in the beginning? Because it seems like it's very intentional from the get go.
1: 100%. Yeah, and I really appreciate that. It's so near and dear to our hearts. There's so much thought and intention behind it. Um, but it definitely was not like that from day 1. It has been that branding ever since we launched, but there was a bit of a journey going into it. So, our one one like true 1.0 brand when we were just like doing our MVP, we literally made using like some online software that like spun up different brands and we just like picked one. And that was how we like <laughs> launched our MVP with our first like couple hundred customers.
0: It's like the equivalent was, of like a rapper name generator online.
1: Truly that, that was what it was. I mean, it was like $20 and we're like, That's okay, weird. this one or this one, it, it was so funny. Uh, so that was 1.0. And then I think we like, went on, um, what I like one of those like design websites where you can pay people like on a project basis for like very reasonable costs to like make a couple of si- things on the side. That was like MVP. And then um, our next brand, uh, which was actually under the name Oxtale, O-X-T-A-L-E, was our kind of like pre-launch brand that we fundraised like our first pre-seed round with. And that was very much like we put a lot of work into that. It took us months to develop. It was a full visual identity. Um, But at the end of it all, it just felt still so generic to us it kind of looked like chobani's branding with like some of the, mm. the little shapes and the and we just it was, while it was beautiful like it certainly was delightful and very like aesthetically pleasing we didn't feel like it reflected us as founders or the brand and the the energy and the ethos which very much had a strong perspective it was like a little bit more forgettable it just felt like kind of like bland and so that was really brutal. Cause we had already spent like, honestly, most of my sister's personal wealth, she didn't have a lot. We, we were both daughters of refugees. So we were just like tapping her savings. And at that point we had spent most of it all on that brand. And we still just looked at each other and we're like, you know what, even if we have to delay this launch, like, and we have to like put more capital towards it, like this is going to be worth it. So at that point we scrapped everything. And started to work on what is AmSam today. And it was not an easy journey. We had to, we got really far with several like full visual identity concepts that could have been pretty much like ready to go and scrap them. That happened like twice. So and it was you a scrap real those?
0: just didn't like them or it didn't feel right?
1: I did not think they I, two things. One, I just didn't, I didn't feel like they were really fresh and really special and really unique. And then the second thing was, I didn't think they reflected the energy that we wanted to imbue our brand with, like this kind of loud, rowdy ethos. I wanted that not only to be a story in writing, but I wanted that to be felt right out of the gate, first glance. Um, And so those just didn't meet that criteria.
0: Got it. Yeah. And I love the backstory on this because I think so many founders will go and they'll come across your brand and the site and be like, oh, and then, you know, they fire it off to their designer or whatever. They're like, do more like this. But what often isn't talked about is like what it took to get there. You know, it's even like very like jobs esque with like, you know, trying to get the iPhone perfect or whatever. It's like, no, we had like three brands before this that we completely threw away um yes which like, and, like, makes uh, sense to get to this point because it's
1: great exactly exactly i mean it, like to be very candid it was it got to the point where it was like the designers were like we don't want vanessa on to call <laughs> 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 because i was like very opinionated yeah. and and maybe didn't know how to like communicate productively but like yeah i mean we got there it just wasn't it was not an easy journey and it, it was many months delayed
0: yeah and then how did the name amsam come up? How do you go from oxtail to Amsam?
1: Yeah, so so to give a little bit of background on oxtail, it is, um, it is a cut of beef that um, is actually used in many cultures, like and, and largely like non Western cuisines. And it's an ingredient that has to be cooked down and stewed for a very long time. And so it's usually at the center of a dish that's like extremely cozy and very much related to like family coming together. And so that was the original inspiration. Um, and for us being Vietnamese, it's one of the main ingredients in pho, which is you know very, very near and dear to our hearts. So that was definitely part of it. Um, but when we decided to like overhaul the whole, the brand uh, before we launched, we went back to our roots of like, what is our mission? Like, what are we trying to achieve? And Aum as a name actually encapsulates this so well. So Aum uh, is actually based on the Vietnamese word Aum It's a negative term. It's like what our parents use to chastise us and scold <laughs> us uh, when we're being like noisy and kind of just like annoying in the back of a car or something like that when we were kids. It's like, stop being so like Aum And we kind of like loved that energy. And we were like, wait, what if we like actually like take that word and feel proud of it? and in a sense, it's our way of saying like, you're like giving the middle finger to this like model minority myth of like Asians being docile or submissive, right? Like it was our way of em- embodying this like noisy, loud and proud energy that AumSan all about. And so we try to live that out in every interaction you have with us. And that's really the heart and soul of the brand.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And And <laughs> speaking of the, of like living that out as a brand, I think that's something that's like really difficult to do. Like you have your brand, you have your ethos. I love how everything is like connected and integrated. So like in terms of like building the brand, so you you got everything ready to go launch in 2019 and then 2020 hit. And like, what was, what was that like? Like when did you officially launch? And then what was it like hitting 2020?
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, it was wild because we were, gearing up for launch in the spring which is when the pandemic hit March of spring
0: 2020 spring of 2020 okay wow, yeah. so that was right when it hit the it was
1: right when it hit like we we debated you know putting things on pause or or just like waiting like riding it out which obviously really glad we didn't try to do that um, but so we ended up just saying you know what like people are going to need food people are going to want to feel a sense of connection and home and that's what AmSam products do So like, let's just do it. So we launched in May of 2020 and no, it was absolutely incredible. It was amazing to see how many people brought us into their homes, like how much like cooking and conversation we were able to facilitate through our products um, so early in our journey.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And and so what was the launch playbook? Like we're going to launch pure e-commerce and then we're going to go into retail or like were you already because you both have this background that's, you know, very aggressive in terms of growth, whether it's like, you know, the startup side or management consulting, like, you know, I've interviewed enough people from that background on this podcast to know it's like, there's probably a plan you want to (laughs) grow. What did that look like when you were when you were launching the brand?
1: Yeah, we had a lot of intention around it. I think a lot of the learnings that we got from interviewing a number of folks in the space. So before we like in 2019, we interviewed probably over 50 people on the industry side, whether that was operators, founders, investors, uh, to just learn about the journey of a consumer brand, a D2C brand, a food brand. Um, and in those learnings, there were a couple of things that really stood out to us. I think one was that going straight into retail as an emerging brand is just an absolute uphill battle. You have no leverage with buyers. Um, you're lucky to get the shelf space. They don't want to like promote you because you don't have anything to offer them. And, and so that's why direct to consumer, like initially I think was part of that broader strategy. We knew we were headed towards Omnichannel, um, but felt like D2C was like the place where we could really tell our story. And so that was really what our launch was all about. And our brand honestly continues to be about is storytelling, storytelling about the brand, about the products, about the founders, about the team, about Asian American community and culture. Um, and we tell stories every single day, every chance we get. Um, and it's an evol- ever evolving story. And so we just felt like direct to consumer would be the best place to do that. You have so much real estate on your website, on, on your social media, like in your community, through video format, through, you know, posts. Like It's just such a rich medium and channel to be able to do that. And ultimately, we felt like that was what would allow us to really cut through the noise. I think the second thing is our product is, yes, very innovative, but therefore also requires education in terms of people understanding how does this fit into my life. So we wanted to launch in a place or on a channel where we could really kind of like start a movement and get people's interest and curiosity about like what's this brand all about, what's this product all about uh, versus being like transactional right out of the gate.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And then when you were doing that education, like what did what did getting the brand out there look like? Are you running, are you taking, creating content and then like scaling it via Facebook ads? Or what did it look like to actually have people, um, you know, be able to come across that content? Were you running PR or what did that look like?
1: So initially it was like doing a lot of the things that maybe don't scale as much. So a little bit more brick by brick community building, more like grassroots. Like we didn't we didn't spend on any paid ads for like the first 12 months of our journey. Oh wow. Um, yeah, so we really grew organically. And I would say similar to the, maybe the methods that like a grassroots campaign would take is like what we did, but as a brand. So we did, Before the pandemic, we did a lot of in-person community building before we had launched. So we went to a lot of Asian-American events, um, like tabled with samples and like started to just like gather big like email lists. We also did a lot of like tests and community building via Facebook groups as well. um, And that helped us like build our email list. So it would be like more like virtual stuff. So um, we would like send samples to folks on Facebook groups, get their feedback, but then like start to build that community. And that's really how we launched with like an audience to start. And then from there, we continue to stay like really laser focused on our ride or die community first and second gen generation Asian Americans. And that is, I think so important And one of the things that I see brands miss most often is they're like, okay, by the end of year one or year two, we want to have X amount of customers. so Like we need to start speaking to that group and like reach far and wide. And what we've, what we realized was that as a small and new brand with fewer resources, you can't really just like boil the ocean. You can't just like target a a broad swath of people because you'll just fall flat. You'll never cut through. You'll never hit that kind of like escape velocity and that like echo chamber density that you will, when you target a very specific community, like a great example of this, not in a digital example, but like in general is with, RX bar and what they did with um the kind of like weightlifting community, right? And and that's really what we did, focused first on the Asian American community who we felt like were totally underserved. Um that really helped us like kind of cut through the noise and that community has been so incredibly supportive and then from there a lot of press um like journalists and press outlets noticed us because they were like, "Whoa, this new brand that actually has a community that really cares about what they're doing, like what's this all about. And from there, we were then amplified um, in a very meaningful way. So yeah, it's been an incredible, incredible journey to see our story be told on, you know, like national television and in print in New York Times and all of that.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And fast forward to today, the brand has scaled. Uh, You don't just sell direct consumer anymore, you're available in retail stores. Can you talk about that? Like when did Retail start to enter the picture, and like, how did you think through that? And maybe even just generally share also, like, what types of stores you're in, where you're sold, so listeners have perspective if they haven't, you know, seen you out in the wild.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, really excited. We launched nationally with Whole Foods, um, in all 500 or so doors, um, back half of last year. And that was just like incredible to see our product on shelves across the country. That they were our first retail partner. And then we just uh, last month launched uh, in 550 target doors. And those are our two kind of retail partners right now. So we're very much at this kind of like exciting inflection point in our journey, going from being Adidas, the only brand now to being like truly Omni channel. Um, in terms of timing of it, it has been so fascinating to see the sentiment around direct-to-consumer versus retail continue to evolve over the years. Like obviously in the pandemic, everybody's like, retail's dead. And then, and now everybody's like, oh no, like iOS 14 and Facebook ads are not as efficient. So like everybody go to retail, right? Like that has absolutely like in just the lifespan of our young company is is really how the sentiment has changed. Um, The good news for us was we always had a plan to go into retail. I just think as like a, a true CPG food brand at the end of the day, We do know retail is like the channel that ultimately you hit like that, that massive scale. Um, And so we always had that in the plan. And so we were moving towards retail before kind of now this, I think like a a really strong push has been happening. We were kind of ahead of the curve there just because it was always part of the plan. So we started having conversations um, in, let's see, it's now in like 2021 with retailers, the, the biggest thing that we had to get right was our supply chain. And so 2022, we largely focused on scaling our supply chain for national retail distribution. Uh, and that was a massive endeavor. It did not go as smoothly as I would have wanted, but like <laughs> such is life uh, scaling supply chains has always been hard. Uh, so that's really what we focused on in 2022. And now, yeah, now we're starting to expand and, Uh, working on new products as well. So, yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Tidio, the highest rated live chat software on Shopify. Through live chat, chat chatbots, and ticketing, Tidio helps Shopify merchants gain and retain more customers with personalized shopping experiences. With Tidio, you can recommend products and offer discounts based on user behavior, and order history, all without leaving the chat widget. This increases conversions and revenue. Tidio also takes the pressure off your support team. The app enables you to manage all of your communication channels in one dashboard and to be able to automate up to 47% of recurring questions. If you want to increase sales and customer satisfaction with personalized shopping experiences, visit tidio.com leaders. That's T-I-D-I-O dot slash leaders to start using Tidio Premium. And I was able to get an exclusive discount for listeners. So make sure you use that link and promo code leaders. It's going to be linked down in the show notes below. But use that link and that code to get an exclusive discount all while leveraging the highest rated live chat software on Shopify. Go check them out. Yeah. And what did that look like having to be able to scale the supply chain to now be national and whole national and whole foods? And I mean, it seems like you're in a lot of targets when I look at the the map on your website. Like, <laughs> it's um, like, what was it like to actually go through that process to have that? And then like you mentioned, like it was really difficult. Like can you just touch on that a little bit for people who, you know, probably don't have experience with retail.
1: Yeah, totally. So I mean, retail retail purchase orders are just like a whole nother level. Right. And, you know, I think what happens is they purchase like big amounts at once versus with D to C, we were kind of like scaling at a certain clip and we could get a sense for what that might be. I mean, don't get me wrong, we had so many stockouts on D to C because of like press that would hit and just like clear out our inventory and then we'd be like, you know, out of stock for weeks at a time. So that what certainly you do happened in those too.
0: weeks. Like, do you just like cut the ad spend and, or, and chill out or no, or.
1: Yeah. I mean, definitely. We, like I said, we hadn't, we hadn't been super active on ads until more recently. Um, so back then we, if we did have any ads then we would pull it back. But the biggest thing we would do is just communicate with customers, put things on pre-order try to get the like the best date we could around when things would arrive. We would definitely see some some um slowdown in with pre-orders, but like that's all we could do is really just take pre-orders. Got it. And like push people to other products that were in stock if we had any.
0: Got it. That makes sense. I yeah. know it's so tough. I think it's better to go out of stock than have way too much inventory. And then you have the other problem and like just like the hype factor with the brand, I think is great. As long as it's a legit yeah. sellout. I think consumers are getting a little bit like it doesn't work like it used to, you know. The whole this right. sold out X times.
1: Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. You, know, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, consumers uh, are smarter than ever about about things like that now. Yeah, yeah. we certainly we certainly like saw a massive uh, massive opportunity with retail, and that's why we started readying our supply chain. I mean, if we brought our capacity from like a like a couple hundred thousand units a month to like now a couple million to be able nice. to kind of meet that demand and. Had to bring on a new partner. That transition was super challenging. We had us we had a situation where our first partner, their machine broke down during the transition, and they were like, okay, well, the machine's broken. So like we're not gonna pay to fix it if you're leaving us. So
0: we'll just be yeah. done.
1: <laughs> Literally. That's what happened. Oh so yeah, I mean, you know, these are the which you can't blame them. It's like a family-run business that just can't like right. just shell out capital for a partner that's leaving them. So yeah, the food business is is a challenging one, like perishable inventory, right? That's another thing to manage. But
0: yeah. Wait, so what but, happened when their machine broke down and you're in the middle and you're like, well, we need these units. What ended up, what did you end up having to do?
1: We had to make some really hard choices. So obviously we accelerated as quickly as possible to our next partner. But even with that partner, we have separate um packaging for direct to consumer product versus retail. So we had to choose, like, okay. We're moving towards them, but they can only start trialing and manufacturing one product line first. And we had to prioritize retail because that those launches were locked in. And so, yeah, that just put us like literally out of stock on direct-to-consumer inventory for a good chunk of 2022, like more than half of it oh, on wow. our best sellers. Yeah.
0: And then was it hard to find the larger uh, manufacturer? Like, was that a journey in itself?
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. In the world of food, everybody talks about how difficult co-manufacturers are, that's what they're called like your manufacturing partner and certainly this was no exception. We totally found the right partner though. Like they are such such incredible partners to us. They really believe in us. Um we have a, a really strong re- like partnership and relationship with them, but finding them was not easy. A lot of a lot of brands just like pay consultants to find partners for them, but we actually found ours ourselves which was really cool. Um, and we have an incredible director of operations who can, uh, can take credit for that.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit. I know we're starting to run out of time, but, um, building a team you mentioned, your incredible director of operations. Like, how have you gone about that? Like there's so many things going on with the brand it's launching then it's then COVID <laughs> happens and then the brand's still launching and then you're sold out. And then, you know, <laughs> everything, you know, everything is going on at once, but at the same time, you're also building a team, like walk me through, you know, thought process on building the team, what that looks like, and how you've been able to do that as, you know, a high growth startup.
1: Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing for me is like, understand what our goals are. And next, you know, our strategy is and work backwards from that, like, what will be the biggest needs in service of hitting those big milestones. That's one angle. And then the other angle is like, what am I doing? Where I'm just clearly not the best person to be doing it. Because for most of the roles on our team, I basically did them in some capacity before we brought in a full-time person to run them. Um, because my sister is deeply focused on creative. She just does like brand, community, like brand marketing, content creation, and that's her bread and butter. And so all the other roles from like finance strategy, product, um, even operations. I had basically been doing with maybe some support, but like largely me. So it just got to a point where things would be like clearly out of control on one area. And I would hire for it as soon as we got to that place. But for a long time, it was a very scrappy operation. And we got pretty far with a very lean team. But once we got that national distribution, it was like, okay, we got to bring in some more experienced people who just like, who can help us like navigate this with grace because scaling a brand nationally right out of the gate in, in retail is, is no small endeavor. So um, yeah, that's really how we approached it. And in terms of finding the right team members, like we've actually heavily, heavily leaned on our own community as a brand. So we've, we've never used, you know, like a headhunter type or a recruiter. Uh, We, we have found most of our folks through, posting it on our instagram and oh, i wow. think that has been our yeah like strongest converting kind of like talent pipeline
0: so you just like post an instagram story and that's how you find your your team
1: yeah most of our most of our team has come in through there which is like so amazing that's
0: amazing yeah so they come in they already know the brand they understand it they love it and then they're like, Hey, by the way, I just happen to, you know, run all supply chain for, you know, this brand owned by Unilever or something like
1: that. <laughs> yeah. Like pretty much. That's like, that's like what happens. It's It's the <laughs> absolute best thing because they're already mission driven and mission aligned. Yeah. And like, I have found that having that is the most kind of like, you can't quantify the value of that because when somebody is like emotionally called to do the best work they can and And feels like the reward of working towards something that speaks to their values and identity or, or, and or identity. It's like really, really powerful. So
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And then like, what is it like in terms of, you know, bringing these people on, like, once they reach out, just because they love the brand, it doesn't mean they're going to be the right fit, or they have the right skill set. So like how, and at the same time, you're a high growth startup, you're not one of these large brands that already has national distribution, there's a lot of things that don't exist that need to be built. Uh, But you also like need that experience at the same time, like, how do you balance both of those, you know, making sure you have the not just somebody who's the right fit culturally, but then they also have the skill set necessary at such a unique, you know, point of the company's growth.
1: Yeah. It's, it's honestly such a, it's such a challenging thing because you, you know, there's that classic trade-off of like really experienced people don't necessarily want to roll up their sleeves and, and like be in the trenches executing, but like absolutely at this stage, that is a requirement. Um, and so I think it starts with just like understanding that people and like team members come with, Strengths and areas of development, and just like seeing them wholly and like accepting that and working with them on that. Um, but also doing a lot of checking upfront in the hiring process like, are they willing to do what it takes to make a startup successful? Because that's a very specific, not just like skill set, but like willingness to do that type of work and like have it be energizing for that person. So we definitely ask a lot of questions to try to get a sense for that. And then the other thing that I always do in my interviews, that's been incredibly telling is something that I actually kind of borrowed from the world of consulting. Like people talk about consulting case interviews, which is when they make you do like basically a mini case like live. Um, And I don't make people do case interviews, but I make people basically do like a, a live problem solving component that they would do actually in their job. And the reason I do that is because I find that that actually levels the playing field. Like I'm not doing some obscure, like, you know, like mind trick type problem. Like I'm doing yeah. something that's like, actually like you would do this on day 10 of the job. And I want to level the playing field. I don't want to just look at somebody's resume and make assumptions about what they can and can't do. Like, why don't you just show me? And this is from a personal experience. When I was interviewing in consulting, I at Harvard studied sociology and economics. And while economics was valued, that was my minor, my major was sociology, which for me was very aligned with like my interests. But I felt like a lot of companies kind of wrote me off as like somebody who wasn't analytical. And that's just the opposite of how my brain works. I'm deeply analytical. And I felt like in case interviews, I had a chance to show these people like what I'm capable of. And so I take that approach to the interview process now, just like, just show me, like, I'm, I can ask you questions, I can read your resume, or you can just show me. Um, And so I've learned a lot from, from designing interviews that way.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I really respect that about like the whole, you know, consulting investment bank culture, like it's very, I mean, granted, there's a lot of barriers to get in because they are totally looking at that resume at the GPA, yes, at the college, 100%. even at the high school, um, where you went and, you know, all of that. <laughs> but, um, but you do have to prove yourself, um, through, you know, I mean, a lot of that, depending on the company, it could be very, very intense, but, um, Yeah, I'd I'd like to see more of that come to DTC just in terms of like, you know, who cares, your pedigree, your resume, whatever. It's like, what can you actually do? Um, I think that's what makes the industry great too. And it's like, doesn't matter if, yeah, what your background is. Exactly. Today. Um, No, that's really awesome. And then, in terms of like thinking about continuing to scale the brand, I know we're starting to run out of time here, but like, how are you thinking about the future of brand, the future of the brand? You've grown a lot in the last couple of years. What's the most exciting thing, or what are you most excited about for the future?
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, it has to be innovation, like bringing new products into the world and, and building them in alignment with our mission of like educating on the multitudes within Asian America. That is, I think, the one of the most powerful ways we can continue to like build the brand and, and like kind of deepen our relationship to our community and grow it. Uh, so that as as well as our community building work that we're doing, um, my sister is just like such a, I think, incredibly unique uh mind in the space that she like, what I love about Kim is that she builds brand and community, but she doesn't. Do it from a place of what are other people doing. She like doesn't follow many brands, especially consumer D2C food brands. <laughs> she doesn't like listen to like brand podcasts, <laughs> no shade, just like in general. She just like does her thing. And she might like take inspiration from like fashion or music, but she pretty much just like is an original thinker. And I think that's so rare. Like, I'll literally ask her, like, oh, did you see what that competitor did who's like so close to us and did a massive product launch? And she'll be like, Uh, I don't know, like, maybe I don't think I saw it. And I kind of love that. I'm like, oh, great. That's actually working for you. So that's one of the things I'm really excited about is like continuing to build community and brand from a place of originality and from a place of like, like just freshness and and like solidity and who we are and what we stand for as a brand.
0: Yeah, I think that's awesome. I think more people need to do that. Um, Like even just they just need to like, even like leave the US for a week and turn off Twitter. And I feel yeah. like they'll just have such better, I don't know, they'll have a much clear head, better ideas and like more original ideas because it is true. It's yeah. like everyone, so many people are just chasing the competition and doing what they do, but like, you're always going to be yes. a step behind. And the true innovation comes when you're not in those, you're not doing the same thing everybody else is doing, but it's really hard. I think that's it's hard. Funny. Yeah. I don't know if this is funny for you to see, but it's like, you know, a lot of brands are like doing esque <laughs> things now. Which is, yeah, like, was probably like looking at your site. It's like, you know, years ago that was risky because everyone's writing in the different D2C brand. Right. And then, like, right. as, this is coming more becoming more popular, you know, the neon, the color block. Um, I don't know. Is that interesting to see other people kind of like follow suit? What's that like?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that because, yes, back when we created this brand, like, it was very much like from our own, like, way of like our own perspective like it it was not pulling from other brands at all um and we all we do joke that like we see we see on some on your mood boards like we do um (laughs) but one thing i've also noticed is like there are a lot of brands that um will literally look at our like content and do their own version of it like very similar um like types of videos or whatever and or content series that we'll put out But like what we notice is that when they do when they copy it, it just doesn't perform for them because it's in a vacuum. It's like they're just like taking disparate things and trying to like catch people's attention, but it doesn't all come together under a clear ethos and perspective, the way that, you know, Tim has has done so delightfully. So very proud of her. I, you know, I totally understand like why other folks do that and um we, we're not too worried about it right like we're just really yeah. focused on doing what we do and we're proud to have like you know influence the way people think about brand it's a huge honor so um yeah that's kind of how we're thinking about it But for sure some days we're a little shady about it like i'll send her stuff on slack and be like look <laughs>
0: <laughs> i know i know some people are just blatant like even <clears throat> listeners to the podcast like hello listeners like people have copy and pasted our website so many times like any day of the week I can just copy and paste some text from our website they don't even bother to change it I'm like wow guys it affected (laughs) me a lot the first time years ago Mm. Um, but then you just kind of get used to it and it's like I can't believe people are still doing this especially whenever like I don't know it's a section of your website that hasn't been updated maybe in a few years yeah you guys are way behind
1: Okay, uh, well I won't I won't say who did this, but one time somebody copied our FAQ like from our website, like so blatantly that it, they literally didn't even remove the like email, like famsisters at ensemble.com. So a bunch of their customers were emailing us about order issues oh, because no. they just straight up copied our whole FAQ, including the email that they were pointing their customers to.
0: Oh man, I was talking to a founder the other day. He said something similar happened where he st- he got a customer service email about a competitor, and he was just like, "Well, it's nice to know they have the same issues as us." Um, because <laughs>
1: they were just like
0: <laughs> ripping apart the competitor for like something outside of their control. I don't even know, like oh, know, shipping yeah. delay or something like that. Totally. But um, That is uh, the FAQ one. That one's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I know they'll never they'll never be on the same level, but they can try. <laughs> um, and it's only going to get harder, but I think there's more opportunity than ever for the people who stick it out and really build a true long-term brand and aren't just chasing retail now that it's cool, like you said, or you know we're chasing D 2 C when it was cool a few years ago. Um, and I like that the brand is a reflection of you. I think too many people are working on brands that they're not excited about. That was just the you know look around, look around the room and see like, oh, what can I do to CFI and try to reverse engineer an exit based off of, and you know obviously that's not happening anymore. So. Really excited yes. about the future of the brand. Um, before we sign off, any closing thoughts or anything else that you'd like to close out on?
1: No, yeah. Thank you so much. Like, Thanks for giving me a chance to tell my story. Really excited about uh, you know this conversation being out in the world. And yeah, if anybody wants to check us out, um, our website is omsom.com or at omsom on Instagram. And we definitely put out a lot of content that, you know, sometimes has nothing to do with food. And I think that's what makes it fun and, and have some depth to it. So yeah, definitely check us out.
0: Amazing. Yeah. we are check it out in store, go to Whole Foods or yes. Target if it's near you. Yes. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah, it's been great to have you on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. I think the most interesting thing for me to learn was like how many iterations of the brand mm. that it went through prior to launch, because like you can definitely see a lot of thought went into the brand. Um, but I didn't realize like, you know, it was like, oh, well, we scrapped it three times before it even ended up going live. So, um, it was awesome to hear that story and yeah, thanks for coming on and sharing it.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much, Dylan.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Waybreak break podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Waybreak Podcast. I hope you have a wonderful day.